0: This is another iRaw podcast. So the, in the feminization of Mother India, it was both the woman and the mother cow.
1: Welcome back to The Animal Turn, everyone. This is another bonus episode. At this time, it gives me great pleasure to say I will be speaking to Yamini Narayanan again. For those of you who have been listeners of the podcast for some time, I spoke to Yamini in, I think it was season three, where we were focusing in on animals in the urban and we spoke about informality. Yamini is just one of these exceptional scholars who seems to really just capture things and say things with such force and power that you can't look away. I tremend, like, I'm gushing, just introducing her. I really enjoyed reading this book so much. Mother Cow, Mother India is a phenomenal piece of scholarship, and it really does show you what is possible with ethnographic research. Let me tell you a little bit about Yamini before we go any further. So Yamini Narayanan is an associate professor of international and community development at Deakin University in Melbourne. Her new book, which we'll be talking about today, Mother Cow, Mother India from Stanford University Press, explores the nexus between daring and right-wing authoritarianism that underpins India's cow protection politics. Her work is supported by two Australian Research Council grants, and she is currently researching animals in the enforced labor of India's brick kilns, exploring the anti-anthropocentric politics of poverty. She's a lifelong fellow of the Oxford Centre for Animal Ethics, an honor that is only conferred through nomination or invitation. Now, we jump straight into the conversation today. You can tell that I'm very excited, and Yamini and I just have a way of kind of chatting, so we get straight into it without much pretense. So I'm just going to give you a little bit of a backdrop with regards to the book. So in the book, Yamini does critical animal ethnography, and she spends a great deal of time in India observing cows and observing the relationships that they have in India. And this includes everything from cows roaming streets to cows in sanctuaries to cows in dairies. She thinks about how cows have been transported, the ways in which they're able to relate to one another. And in the conversation today, we try to center our conversation on the idea of mother and how, the many ways in which you know cows are kind of used with the idea of mother. So what does it mean to be a mother? Yamini yeah, does mean a really skilled job of contrasting the kind of ideologies of motherhood with the materiality of being a cow mother in India. Her work is really exceptional, and if you're looking for a book that you just won't be able to put down, I think it's this one. So definitely go check it out, Mother Cow Mother India, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Um, not only is it a privilege to be speaking about your book today, but it's an honor to have you back on the show. You're the first guest ever in the podcast's history to be on twice. So put that on your CV. <laughs> uh, I am excited and honored,
0: Cla- Claudia, because um, I have actually been really impressed at how quickly and how rapidly you have taken Animal Turn to the next level. It's actually right up there. Given it's still young, it's right up there as one of the most prominent Animal Studies podcasts, and you have an exceptional range of guests. You have introduced me to whole new fields of thinking and knowledge just from your podcast. So, thank you in turn, because you've done an amazing job of really establishing yourself and establishing your podcast as a valuable knowledge bank.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm looking forward to once the PhD is done and dusted to see what else I can do with the animal turn. But yeah, so to, in today's episode, this is going to be a bonus episode and we're going to focus on your book, but I wanted to center the conversation around the word mother. So your book is called Mother Cow, Mother India. And, and like I said a moment ago, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's absolutely exceptional and we'll get into a whole bunch of different components about it. It's rich, it's detailed, it's, heartbreaking, and it's personal. You you put a lot of yourself into this book. So before we get into kind of talking about mother, maybe we can start with the beginning. How, what made you want to write this book? Oh, thanks for that question, Claudia, because... When
0: I ask a lot of animal studies scholars about, you know, how they got into their respective fields and respective pursuits, one of the common questions, that, one of the common answers I always get is that they have always had some sort of a relationship with animals and they've grown up with animals or, you know, they have had intimate, you know, relationships of kinship, family, care, etc., And they have also always been taught to honor and respect animals. Now, None of that was necessarily true of me. And that is why my own story actually gives me a lot of hope about how it's possible to change minds because uh, w- we grew up with a lack of awareness of animals. I, d- I wouldn't say that we were taught to be exploitative or cruel or harmful in any intentional way, but we certainly had no awareness of animals growing up. I think like a lot of human beings, we just sort of lived in our very anthropocentric, human-centric worlds, and in so far as animals invaded our worlds at all, or intruded, or made their presence known—those are better words—we there were there were more in terms of um, you know stories or or cute incidents or you know rarely violence as well because we also lived in very mainstream urban worlds where you are actually secluded from the, a lot of the, from the violence that is normative for animals. So the way that I got into this research was in 2014, I was starting a new research project and that was around when the BJP, the Bharati Janata Party, that's the Indian People's Party, came to power in India. For the first time in India's history as a post-colonial independent nation, the Hindu right finally asserted itself at the center in an in, in in exceptionally prominent way. And um, Narendra Modi came to power as the prime minister of India. And right around simultaneously at the same time, a specific form of of othering of Muslims started. And this time it involved an animal. It involved the cow, right? So so, Muslims who were accused of slaughtering cows or butchering cows or transporting cows to slaughterhouses started to be lynched, killed. Women were raped. So there were all sorts of atrocities being perpetuated against them using the cow, weaponizing the cow. So I started to get really interested in what was actually going on because, and and I was trained as a journalist. so So for me, it was always very clear that I had to get all sides of the story. And one of the missing stories for me was always what the animal activists had to say. It would take me even longer to train my focus directly on the animals. It was still... My research was still very human-centric-centric centric to start with. And when I when I wanted to hear what the animal activists had to say. Even so it wasn't very clear because when I did ask, when I did start to contact animal activists, they operate a little bit differently to the cow vigilantes who were trying who were who were, you know, claiming to protect cows from, from the Muslim butchers, right? So they operate differently because they have an investment in all types of animal well-being and welfare, etc., So I was exposed instantaneously to a whole world of animal atrocities you know, starting with pigs and snakes and monkeys and dogs and cats. Like, my my world exploded. I had no idea. And I started to think not in my name. Like, I had no idea. I had no idea that it caused so much suffering, so much heartache, so much terror, so much fear, so much of every type of suffering, hunger, you name it, right? And I just thought not in my name. And I actually went directly back to my activist activist friend, who I actually talk about in my book, Pradeep, and I asked him, what should I do? And he said, focus on the cows, just because the cow is so hyper-political at the moment. He says, we as activists also don't know what to make sense of it. So I started to focus on the cow. And it's actually really interesting because by caste, I'm of of the Brahmin caste. And this caste is actually associated traditionally with cow protectionism and implicitly by othering by engaging in othering practices. So in a sense, I was actually placing myself in a very stereotypical position of writing a book on cow protection as a Brahmin woman. So I had to tread this landscape very carefully so that I didn't sort of come across as reinforcing any of those stereotypes that I absolutely reject of oppression.
1: Well, I mean, I I think your book... Does exactly that. I think your book seems to be a resistance to the simple story, right? There is, there is no simple story throughout your book, but maybe we can just take a a step or two back a little bit here. So firstly, you're speaking about cow protectionism and you're speaking about animal rights and to people who are not really alert to Indian politics and how kind of central cows are to Indian politics. They might not really understand what the difference is here. And something quite you do really early on in your book is you say, well, there is a key difference between car protectionism and what might be called uh, animal activists, uh, because perhaps car protectionists would frame themselves as being a form of animal activist. But that's not really what you say. You say that there's a key difference between these two groups of people.
0: That's right. That's right. And, And thanks for drawing attention to this very crucial difference. So again, to step back a little bit, as you suggest, this actually goes back to India's Colonial time and 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 then the, and the independence movement that sort of mobilized around the, around the colonial time. There was a very strong anxiety about what happens once the British leave. What sort of country does India become? Does it become a Hindu state? Does it become a Muslim state? Or does it become a secular state? Right, and there was a really strong resistance movement to. This idea of secularism from both Hindu from from both the Hindu right and the Muslim right, so there was a very strong um, movement for the creation of two states, which one would be a Hindu state and one would be a Muslim state, which eventually became Pakistan and later Pakistan split into Pakistan and Bangladesh. So the But there was also an even stronger secular movement in India, led by the Congress Party, which was very explicitly and intentionally secular, and they said they always wanted India to be a secular state, which the Hindu right really rejected from the start, because they said that if Pakistan gets to be its own Muslim state, India, by rights should be a Hindu state, right? And they lost that battle at the time of independence, but they have never stopped trying, and they have finally come to power in India. They have been very patient waited some 75 years post independence and they have now finally come to power now as a way of mobilizing for a hindu state they they took a number of approaches one of the approaches that they took was the feminization of the hindu state that feminization took two two parts again one was of course the mother mother india as a woman as a hindu woman specifically right the other was mother india as cow as a lactating cow okay now the cow is not more unique in theological or uh, Hinduism than other animals. If you go back to pure theological Hinduism, Hinduism as a religion actually regards all living, all life as sacred. So we even have a tradition of worshipping trees. You know, we have a sacred grove tradition, a sacred forest tradition. So technically speaking, all animals and, and plant life and tree life in India are sacred, are sacred right? Rats are sacred. We have a tradition of worshipping rats in certain parts of India. There are certain castes in, in Rajasthan, for example, that have a, have a strong tradition of worshipping rats. So there's a whole number of animals that are worshipped in, in Hinduism. Cow per se is not unique in the theological landscape. But in the political landscape, the cow emerges as the meta animal because the cow is twinned with Brahmins in the caste structure. Now, in the Hindu caste imagination, animals are also born into caste. It's not just human beings, but animals are also born into caste, okay? So in race, for example, we dehumanize using the animal to dehumanize human beings. In in caste, animals and, and human beings are, are very intricately interconnected. Brahmins and cows are intricately interconnected, right? So, upper caste, and caste is, of course, a hierarchical system, so one of the ways in which you, we we always reinforce hierarchies is through the use of symbols the cow sort of lends herself as such a symbol right and 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 in the creation of a hindu state it wasn't going to be a low caste hindu state obviously low caste in quotes it wasn't going to be a low caste hindu state or an untouchable caste hindu state in quotes it was obviously going to be an upper caste hindu state so it made sense therefore to mobilize the cow as a symbol of mother india as well so the in the feminization of mother india it was both the woman and the mother cow right now how do you how do you other because we all know that nationalism per se is a project of inclusion and exclusion nationalism doesn't work if you don't exclude right so how do you exclude using these symbols of mother india as a, as female uh, in terms of the human or the cow they you know indian feminist sociologists for a long time have talked about how the muslim is framed as rapist right so rapist of Hindu women, therefore implicitly rapist of Mother India, and you extend that to cows, the cow, the Muslim becomes a cow slaughterer, and therefore also violating Mother India.
1: Okay, so so you've got the emergence, if, if I'm following everything correctly, you've got the emergence of a Hindu state here, and cows are mobilized in order to propel the divisions between different caste systems. So because because cows are associated, and, and and not naturally so, because they're kind of politically mobilized to function as part of the, the Hindu state, they help to kind of create the divisions not only between different castes, but also between different animals. So some animals kind of get revered more than others, but some castes get revered more than others. And the, the caste system is really quite complicated. I think for folks that are outside of India, I was quite startled when reading your book just how intense and visceral, you know, the the caste system is. You know, you have several examples in the book of people being from, so a Dalit caste is one of the, the lower caste. You've got Muslim folks who are in India as well. And how if you're part of a Dalit caste and you encounter a Brahmin who is an upper caste member, you could be asked to sit on the floor. You could be treated really poorly. Just because you've been born into a different caste system, exactly, exactly. It's a very
0: dehumanizing landscape. It's a dehumanizing, abjecting, humiliating landscape. It's it's much its oppressions are much more entrenched than the oppressions of race, which are which are which are terrible enough, right? So, because with the oppressions of caste, there is it is it is read as a sociobiological truth. It's in the biology. If you're lower caste it's in the biology that you are a certain way. So it's read as a sociobiological truth. So that makes it even more entrenched as, a, as an oppression mechanism and also as an elevation mechanism, right? So Brahmins are inherently superior because it's in our biology
1: so so it's like an essentializing move but what's quite what's quite interesting is it also seems to be attached to different kinds of labors right so if you're born into a specific caste you tend to be found doing particular types of labor and this has also led uh, led to some people finding themselves more affiliated with the dairy industry versus other people being more affiliated with slaughter and beef industries right
0: absolutely absolutely you read that correctly so the dairy production continuum is a vast continuum from, let's say, simplistically putting it from breeding all the way to slaughter. We know that there is a for life and afterlife. Katie Gillespie's work talks a lot about the afterlife of dairying. But let's put it simply in terms of breeding to slaughter, right? Just that continuum. Even just that continuum, in addition to the continuum beyond and before, is a very vast, comprises of a very vast professional expertise. So when I went to the breeding farms, for example, you go to a semen bovine a semen farm, a frozen semen, a semen farm, that is full of highly white-collared educated professionals because they have to be trained in genetic engineering. They have to have professional expertise in genetic engineering. You have to be of a highly dominant, privileged caste in order to be able to access that kind of education, in order to be able to access that kind of research funding. We all know research funding underpins all of this sort of knowledge production and how expensive it can be. And, you know, the kind of equipment that genetic science requires. It's, and bovine reproductive genetic science is actually one of the most researched aspects of almost all animal production, right? So you have very privileged cohorts of people, caste cohorts of people who are composing this particular section of the breeding end. And then you go further down and then you have the dairy farmers. Now the dairy farmers can comprise will comprise usually the middle castes, a lot of the middle castes, right? Like the Patels of Gujarat, they're all of the middle castes, so they'll comprise all of that. They're still higher because the, the key distinction is not between the upper and the middle. The key distinction really is that the interface of the untouched, so-called the former untouchable castes and everybody else. Because untouchability is a very crucial distinction, right? That is actually it's it's a criminal offense in India under the Indian constitution to practice untouchability. It's a hu- seen as a human rights violation. So that is where the most oppressive interface of caste actually occurs is between the caste deemed untouchable and everybody else. So the middle caste and the upper caste, there's really a lot of interface, which is not necessarily carrying the same kind of violence that, that it does at this end. So you have the middle caste who are engaged in dairy production. And here as well, there's a lot of privilege because milk by itself is not as valuable as once you start adding value to it, which is which means, you know, once you start processing the milk into cheese and ice cream and all of these value added products, again you need a lot of capital, a lot of professional expertise. So again, this branches off into a lot of professional and caste-based diversity, which are all privileged. Uh, But then once you move the animal herself down the production continuum into transporting for slaughter, which is itself a very key aspect of production, like Dinesh Vadevel's work talks about how transportation is significant because, you know, you have to move the animal to add value to the animal body. But in India, transportation takes on an extra meaning because we are technically not supposed to be transporting cows to slaughter. That doesn't happen supposedly in India. So what happens in India is that that goes underground. Now, who is going to be working underground? Not the privileged groups of people. People who are going to be working underground and doing exceptionally risky labor, because you can imagine that transporting cows to slaughter is one of the most risky things you can do in India in the current climate, where you have a Hindu right government in in power at the moment. They have been in power for the last almost 10 years and likely to come back again, right? So transporting cows in India takes an exceptionally charged, uh, charged tone. So, and then, And then, also, of course, butchering the cows itself, right so these these activities with relation to cows specifically have to happen underground so but but even even if it happened legally in an authorized manner as it does in most other countries who works at the slaughter end of production? It is always the marginalized people. Like that was the, that was, you know, all over Tim Petriot's work, for example. It is always the undocumented workers, the vulnerable workers, the marginalized workers. It's, it's, always, it's always the marginalized labor that are racially, caste-wise, et cetera, that are at the slaughter end of production. And in India, it is exceptionally so just because it is associated with such extraordinary risks,
1: Right. Yeah, I mean, as as you mentioned at the beginning, if you get affiliated or associated with the slaughter of cows, you can face really severe, like lynchings and 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 killings for for being associated with uh, with cow slaughter. And you make a really powerful point in your book about how we need to start speaking about human rights issues together with animal rights issues. And I hope we'll we'll manage to get to that. But maybe we can now start switching a little bit to talking about mother. So you said there in a moment ago that cows are kind of used as this national symbol, the symbol of motherhood, right? Like the, the nation mother. I remember reading about this uh, when thinking about South Africa, how women are mobilized to be like mothers of a nation, right? The Africana nationhood. But when you start to talk about an animal being the mother of a nation, it seems quite, quite different and strange. But then again, cows are also actually... Mothers. And I think that this is something you do quite well is to show how variable the idea of what a mother is, is in India. Like On the one hand, you've got this national kind of rhetoric being used to mobilize and create like an idea of what India should be. But on the other hand, you've got the very material reality of what it means to be a bovine mother in India.
0: Yes. Yes. So I was trying to unravel. You read that so perfectly, so beautifully. I was trying to unravel the different facets of being a mother because on the surface of it, it sounds nice to say that we regard the cow as we regard our mother, right? Because the mother is one of the most treasured relationships in intrahuman relationships, right? We have, we have the, the, the mother was probably one of the most important figureheads in intra-human relationships. So it actually sounds like a good thing. It, it sounds like there can be no harm. And on the contrary, there's a profound amount of respect, love, rever- reverence, veneration accorded to a farmed animal. It's not just, it, we're not, we are not, we are well past talking about humane at this point. And we're talking about venerating a being in this way. So I, but, but at the same time, this idea of Labeling a being as mother beyond the responsibilities and attachments that might arise between a mother and her child, whether you know biological or adopted i mean of course even within these realms the the, the, the use of motherhood can be very diverse but let's let's uh, to to simplify here let's just talk about the relationship between the mother and her specific child. To, to extend beyond that and, and to lay and to lay and to project a motherhood on on women for example in, in some sort of a political way is actually uh, feminists have talked about how non-innocent and how purposively intentional and exploitative this is so Indian feminists have said for example they have gone so far as to say that the labeling of women in in, in the case of humans women as mothers or as wives at least that's one label that's been spared the coast, right? But the labelling of m- women as mothers or wives, like the mother of, the, you know, we have cu- we have a cultural responsibility of being mothers of, of, of m- mothers of the nation, passing on cultural values of of Hinduism and and, in, and safeguarding the Hindu nation through our mothering responsibilities. They actually say that labelling. The, the burden that women have had to bear as being, being objectified as mothers, they actually say it's one of the most significant reasons for the backward status of women in India more generally. And you're talking about the backward, We are talking about health benchmarks, education, literacy, employment, wages, in just about every realm of the Human Development Index. Women in India fall amongst some of the most low ranks. of of enjoying any of these sorts of basic human rights, human development indexes, right? And they say that one of the reasons is this sort of labeling of women as mother, which actually ends up controlling them, cornering them, and imposing upon them a particular identity from which they cannot break out of, right?
1: So you're not speaking here about women who are mothers as in nursing their children. You're speaking here about how the idea of motherhood is mobilized to make Women take on particular types of responsibility for passing along national identities or ideas, or and that requires work and labor. But also, I suppose you can't be in specific places or spaces that if you are mothering, you you you're restrained in particular ways. So, am, am I am I correct here? So, you're not speaking necessarily about the the bond between a mother and a child. You're speaking here about the kind of ideas that come with passing along something.
0: Absolutely, precisely. I'm actually separating the bond between a mother and child from this sort of political objectification of women as mothers, right? Because in the case of Cows, and I think the case of Cows exemplifies this, the political objectification of a being as mother actually completely serves to severe or violate the, 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 the original bond between the mother and her child, right? So, Martha Nussbaum talks about objectification, Right. She talks about objectification and, and she outlines, I think, seven forms, seven ways in which objectification is inherently violent. She's, she talks about objectification as a process that is inherently violent. And she notes just one exception to this, which can make it not violent. Right. She says objectification is not violent when there is informed consent. If I am allowing if I am allowing myself to be objectified based on informed consent, then it is not necessarily violent then that's the one exception to objectification being violent. Animals cannot give up informed consent, right? So all forms of objectification of animals are violent. And one of the central arguments of my book is that the sacralization of animals is also a form of objectification that is therefore inherently violent. Whether it's a sacralization as a goddess, sacralization as just inherently sacred, or or one of the most harmful forms of objectification is the imposition of a off the motherhood mantle on, on, on a being in, in political
1: front. I thought this was really so powerful. The idea of, of how being de- deemed sacred or godlike, you know, we might think, I mean, so as you know, I do work on cows as well. And almost invariably, whenever I whenever I speak about cows in North America and I talk about some of the violences and and objectification, people always bring up. India, because India sits in a, in a when it comes to cows, not only in Indian imaginaries, but in global imaginaries, India has a very unique space, right? So people who know very little about India or Indian politics, cows are front and center, even outside of India, as being a place where somehow India is unique. And then, you know, people will mobilize it even outside, beyond the border saying, but, you know, cows are sacred in India. And then you read your book and you say, And I was like, wow, well, being sacred really doesn't do the cows any favors in India, because it just seems as though if you are sacred, you have a whole bunch of things done to you, as you say, that you can't necessarily give any sort of consent for. So you you paint this really incredible picture of kind of milk being poured over statues in in this kind of reverence, while at the same time, you've got a cow tied up with her calf that she can't get near to. Just an incredible juxtaposition of the material desire of the cow to be with her calf versus the idea of her as a sacred cow and how much that divorces her from what she might want.
0: Yes, absolutely, absolutely. The idea of sacred as being a celebratory or even a liberatory ethic is deeply, deeply unfounded. In the case of, we, we, we must remember that not, not not too long ago, children were also worshipped in India, right, and in Hindu cultures. So child worship was common. And in fact, child worship is still common in a lot of communities or in, or in a lot of spaces and geographies. We don't necessarily come to know about it because child worship would actually now be considered a child rights abuse. It would be considered child abuse to worship a child. But that being said, I remember in two, not long ago, 2017, I was in Kathmandu for, again, an animal studies conference. And one of, you know, when you uh, to conferences, you have a lot of, um, I mean, there's a lot of tourist literature. And, you know, one of the one of the tourist literatures that we we saw was actually on, 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 of a temple where a girl child was being worshipped. And we were actually ho- we were shocked. We were so horrified. Of course, none of us went. We weren't going uh, to participate in that. But we were actually really horrified because we had never heard of that done so openly in India. It's not, that's what I'm saying. It's not to say that it doesn't exist. It just is not so open as a lot of these things are not. But it would be considered a major child abuse of major form of child abuse to worship a child. Because what happens? What happens when you worship a child, when you worship a woman, when you worship an animal is that you are imposing a particular identity. Attached to that identity is a way of being, right? And that, el- that completely is at the expense of your natural way of being. If a child is being worshipped in a temple and there's going to be th- hundreds and thousands of pilgrims uh, coming through every week to worship, the child loses the right to be a child to be a child per se and to be a specific child of kind of child that she might be she
1: might be a really you know feisty child she's not going to get to be that if she's a goddess well it's it's essentializing i think all of us can relate to what that kind of essentialist move is anyone who's been told that there's something and they know that they're not and you want to defend yourself you get defensive with that and then when being labeled as a as a god or sacred when it shapes your autonomy your autonomy is kind of completely Removed because you are, you have to do whatever the script is. Whatever the script is, is what your life becomes. Precisely. Precisely. You're reading off a script.
0: You're living off a script. You're being controlled. You're being controlled. That's the main thing. You're being controlled by a script. It's a, it's a way of domination. It's an act of domination to sacralize a living being in that way. And here we got to ask, what are the stakes in it for the person doing the sacralization? What's the stakes in it for me? to sacralize another being. What is the stakes? So here's where we come to identity politics. My identity, let's say as a Hindu, is is based on a number of different forms of symbols, identities, rituals, practices, etc. That makes me, let's say, a Hindu, right? But attached to that is also the way that another sentient being is performing their own lives. Okay, so that's no longer politics of identity, that's a politics of identification. So the politics of identification is that I am I am identifying with, my identity is relied on a politics of identification with another being, being, performing, existing, living a certain way. It is not just inherent to the, life that I live, it is it is intricately related to the life that another being lives. I have a stake, my identity, the stakes of my identity is heavily reliant, directly intertwined with the way that another living being lives, whether it's a child, whether it's a woman, whether it's a cow.
1: So it's not benign, right? If my identity is contingent on identifying someone else as something, then then it's no longer benign. It's reliant on its reliant on a particular set of structures and things to happen. So if, if my identity as X caste or X position or X whatever is reliant on a particular animal being becoming sacred, then that animal becomes nothing other than that sacred thing, quote unquote, because my identity relies on it. Exactly. Exactly. You've know, you
0: distilled the identity. It, it's it's the same as commodity production, like Rosemary Collard's work, and you know they all they talk about how commodity production basically means that you reduce an animal to to its one use or to you know whatever the uses are. It's it's that the the being of the animal is distilled to the use that you ascribe to the animal. It is the same with sacralization because that's also a form of commodification, right? So you distill it, distilling the animal to a, being a particular way, which means you have to exercise control. You have a whole spectrum of cows with a whole range of personalities. That cannot be allowed. They all have to be distilled to a particular sacred use.
1: And you use, you use, which I've got to say, I absolutely love the use of this. In having this conversation, you bring up this word, debovinization, which I think is really super powerful because whenever we speak, because we do speak about how animals are used to dehumanize particular humans. And it's a really important and powerful and problematic way in which animals are, are also used in that kind of identification politics that you're talking about. But I think rarely do we talk about how animals are de whatever, and here like de-bovinization how how in this act of making a cow a sacred thing we deny them and, and not just cows as you mentioned they're also buffalo we deny cow and buffalo mothers the opportunity to be bovine in the way they'd like to be absolutely
0: absolutely so dehumanization is not unique to human beings it is a species it's a species form. Of, it's a form of species oppression. We can, we, we can, de- it's actually a form of desubjectification. You're actually deperson, depersonifying and desubjectifying a living being. In the case of humans, you're dehumanizing. In the case of cows, you are debovinizing. And inherently, what that means is that you are erasing the essential characteristics that compose a bovine being as a collective, but also as an individual, right? As I said, there are multiple differences between house in terms of their personality, in terms of their notions of, of a good bovine life. I mean, you know, the, the, there are enormous variations within individuals and also, of course, inherent to the collect, uh, the species. So de-bovinization is also as much an oppression of caste, in the case of India, as dehumanization is. Right, And to make dehumanization, the act of dehumanization humanization somehow unique to humans, is ironically an assertion of human supremacy as well. To say that only humans can be desubjectified in this way because we desubjectify other animals all the time and that is sort of fundamental to their exploitation. In any form, whether it is as consumable commodities or whether it is a political objectification and political consumption in that way right? So caste has as much of a capacity to de for example, as it does to dehumanize. And that is, uh, but in the case of, there's a the key difference here between dehumanization and de is that dehumanization is suffered by humans who are vulnerable, politically, socially, historically, et cetera. Typically, it happens to humans who already have a long entrenched history of vulnerability. In the case of animals, virtually all animals, are vulnerable, whether they are seen as elevated or not, because there is not just de inherent in the rejection or the contempt that is shown to buffaloes, for example, because they're seen as an indigenous animal, they're seen as a black-skinned animal, and there's a lot of racial contempt that is projected on, on the buffaloes in addition to the burbanization that occurs naturally as part of being a dairy animal. There is also de in the racism and the casteism that is shown to the buffalo, but so too in the ways that it, in, in which it is shown to the cow. By elevating a cow, supposedly as mother or as goddess, as we have been discussing, there is violence inherent to that process as well.
1: What made you go with de-bovinization instead of saying de-animalization? Because de-animalization would cut across a whole host of animals. Why, why choose to... I mean, of course, bovines are not just cows. Bovines include a whole host of animals too. But what made you decide to go with you know, de-bovinization instead of de-animalization? So the, I'm, I'm happy with... the
0: When you're talking in much broader terms or in much more generic terms and, and covering a larger landscape of the non-human world per se, I'm really happy to go with de-animalization. In in the in, in in discussing cows specifically I thought debovinization could draw, help us draw attention to the specific types of elision of bovine vulnerabilities, bovine needs, bovine personhood, bovine biological personhood, as well as political personhood as it were. In another paper actually I talk about de-personization as well, where I talk about the ways in which pigs are <laughs> pigs are also deportionized. So I do talk about, I do extend this into other forms as well. I think we can talk about de-whatever with the whole spectrum of animals. And I think it is important to, just to sort of not abstract all animals and collapse them because they all don't share the same vulnerabilities necessarily. There is a deanimalization. I think, that is inherent. It's a form of desubjectification, right? So I think it is pertinent to ta- draw attention to this as a form of political oppression, but I think it can be really helpful to specify as well.
1: I agree uh, because, I mean, as you mentioned there, the cows and buffaloes are kind of positioned in quite different ways in the dairy industry and and perhaps in ways that pigs are not right and kind of speaking about how those specific practices of dairy maybe disallow particular ways of being or of being kind of caught up in the pork industry disallow particular ways of being is quite important. I'd like to speak because we're we're already marching on with time and I don't think we've actually spoken much about cows themselves yet and I think that we would be remiss if we did not because we've spoken now about motherhood in, in a couple of different ways now so to be a mother, I mean, we've spoken about how the idea of mother is used to mobilize and, and used against both human mothers and cow mothers. We've spoken about how the idea of being sacred is mobilized in particular ways against uh, cows and, and, and mothers, female, mo- human mothers. <laughs> I didn't have the right language. Um, like be, becoming sacred can actually kind of hinder, hinder you. We've spoken about how it's mobilized in national discourses. So mother or mothering or motherhood is a really powerful symbol. I get that. But it's also a material relation. And being these symbols has had really big implications for how cows can be mothered, and how you can be mothered um in india so could you maybe just paint us a bit of a picture of what it means to be a cow mother in india and what does it mean to be mothered by a cow in india i think
0: that's a that's a powerful and that's also a very gutting question as well to be a cow mother in india is to lose your child instantaneously uh to to lose the right to to suckle, to, 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 there is a huge, I mean, let me, let me, let me step, let let me step back on this a little bit. Biologically speaking, cows that become pregnant in the case of India are already malnourished. They're already severely malnourished. So oftentimes they will have just about enough nutrition to become pregnant in the first place. Right. And once they become pregnant, a lot of, uh, there's a huge amount of, a large numbers of of cows just losing their infants just in the process of pregnancy as well. It's a process called dystocia, where they cannot even deliver easily. They cannot even deliver easily because they're, they're so weak, they're so malnourished, and there's a history of malnourishment, which means they often give birth to very, very malnourished calves. They 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 give birth to calves that are way way lighter than they should be at birth, right? So there is a enormous you know practice of malnutrition, undernutrition and leading to high rates of maternal morta- mortality and infant mortality by itself, even before they reach the slaughterhouse. So we, we kind of really need to be attentive to that. And this is not very different at all from the high rates of maternal mortality and infant mortality that is more prevalent amongst humans in India as well. I think it's one of the leading countries for maternal mortality and child mortality generally. There I, I mean, the practices of dairying per se are consistent. I think in India, as there are elsewhere, the child is separated from the mother virtually instantaneously. Instantaneously, the what happens is around the the difference, right? So the the the, the girl calf gets girl calf generally gets fed, you know, formula. What happens to the male? What happens in other countries is that they will also get get shunted off to the, to the slaughterhouse what happens in india it's a very very normative very widespread practice is to simply starve the calf to death the the male calf is literally quite literally starved to death but it, it's not you know so so these these processes are pervasive but what actually really is one of the most one of the most viscerally haunting memories is actually When the calf and the, and the cow are still present in the farm, either when the calves haven't been shunted off to the slaughterhouse yet, or they haven't been starved yet, or if the, if they, there are still female calves that are used. Now, it's interesting what the practice that actually happens in India is that oftentimes the calves are still used as cogs of the dairy industry because there's a lot of crossbreeding between native Indian cows and the Holsteins and Jerseys that are imported from usually the United States and other and you know other you know, European countries, etc. Now the native Indian cow, apparently, and this is something I keep hearing over and over. Buffalo mothers, as well is something I keep hearing over and over, is that they don't actually allow milk letdown unless the calf is nearby, because they they perform milk letdown, so to speak, only when the calf is nearby because they haven't been bred as intensively for the dairy industry. They still have some of the natural. Indigenous wildness, as it were, which keeps them less commodifiable in some ways, right? So, so the Holstein cow, for example, apparently will just let down milk more easily as compared to the indigenous cows. Now, when the indigenous cows are crossbred, they still retain some of the indigeneity in not being able to let not letting down their milk unless the calf is present. So, oftentimes, you'll still see the calf being used as a cog of the dairy industry in India. So, they will be allowed literally to suckle for maybe ten seconds. So a long milk let down and then they'll be pulled away. That moment happens over and over and over in India. That moment of separation happens over and over and over. It's not a once-off as it happens normatively in Western farms. This happens twice a day.
1: Yeah, you're right. I mean, it is, it is quite emotional. And the, the scenes you paint in, in your book, there was one farm I know you visited where you asked them to just please let the calf suckle. You said, please just let them, and, and, you know, I found it, you're, you're so brave. You're in all of these places and, and the amount of times you ask or you, uh, you and it's hard, I, I guess, like when you're doing this research, you're told not to intervene, you're told not to do these things, but when it's just such a visceral moment, but there was the story about the calf that you asked, please let them feed. And they they went and they fed for 23 minutes, right? Yes, they fed for about 27 minutes, correct. And
0: it was... A revelation for all of us as a collective. I mean, I was just a researcher with no history of handling cows or knowing anything about cows. I'd never lived with cows. So this was, this was once, uh, this was a time when I visited, I visited a number of dairy farms, but this was a dairy farm that I visited at the time of milking and they were using this calf as a, as a cog. And, you know, the calves were being taken to different cows and then, you know, pulled, pulled away after 10 seconds. And it's actually. An extremely loud time, not just for the ways that the mothers bellow, but for the ways that the calves bellow, okay, a calf has an exceptionally loud sound, and I think it's because in a natural herd, let's say in the forest, if a calf gets lost or falls away, the calf needs to be able to cry really loudly in order for the mother to come back and find him again, right so it's actually an exceptionally loud you have to pay attention. You have to pay attention. And in that moment of hyper stress and anxiety, because the cows are hyper stressed and anxious, certainly I was feeling it as a researcher who was very empathetic to the cows. It's also likely that the workers were, because how can you not be affected by that? But uh, so, you know, they were constantly pulling pulling the cows and I said, oh, please just, but there was this one calf who was being, punished because he was a very spirited calf and he was the last to get suckled. And I said, please, just, and it was breaking my heart, a male calf. I knew he, and he was exceptionally loud. And, you know, you know, those big bovine eyes and you can just see those I mean, it's a baby, it's an actual baby, you know? And so I, I, I yeah, I've said, please just, just let him feed. So they did. And actually, they were they were really kind, either, I think, probably in some ways more to me than necessarily to the calf, but then they let the calf feed and they kept saying, do you want me to pull, can we take the, pull the calf away? I said, no, let him have one decent feed. So we let the calf have one decent feed. It took 27 minutes. It was only remarkable because how quickly calves are pulled away. Because it's also, because, you know, they're used as cogs of the dairy industry. And because the calves are allowed to suckle, at least twice a day, so to speak. You know, the claim can be made, right? They only do it for ten seconds or fifteen seconds, but the claim can be made that hey, we let the calf suckle. The claim can be made in India, Indian Indian dairying like that. So, but the, but the, but the ten fifteen second not suckling therefore becomes normative. You do anything repetitively, it becomes normative, right? So when you allow a calf to suckle for twenty seven minutes, and they're suckling and suckling and suckling and It was a revelation for all of us, all of us, we actually gathered to watch this wondrous act because it was a wondrous act. These were all people who were working in the dairy farm. They had seen calf suckle all the time. It was the amount of time, right? We were all watching as though it was a wondrous act because it was the simple act of suckling. And 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 for a very loud spirited calf, he was very mellow, very calm, and they pulled him back. But it was just unbearable because the thing is we know that even with human infants suck- suckling usually happens every 2 hours feeding happens every 2 hours and this is not this is something that is chronically denied they live in a state of
1: chronic hunger and it's not just the milk right like we tend to think when it comes to to dairy cows you know there there are some or, or dairy animals i think in general there are some tropes that kind of come up time and again and because they they matter and they're important the extent to which calves are taken away from their mothers the limits of time in which they are able to suckle but there are so many other ways in which they are denied meaningful relations the number of just calves lying on concrete floors or tied to these really small tethers being unable to to move or even to touch another that just seems like a whole the lack of touch just seemed really cruel absolutely
0: absolutely i think i think there is enough research that's been done in the case of humans about how lack of touch during infancy or childhood for various reasons leads to all forms of really intense long lasting enduring trauma in the case of cows we also have to understand i think this is possibly very inherent to you know human mothering as well i think we would all be tribal mothers if social formations allowed that we have become increasingly atomized as a society, but certainly in the case of bovine mothering, I, I think it's it, tribal mothering is somehow also very inherent, whether it comes to, I mean, you know, I think you, that there is very much a unique bond between a biological mother and a biological calf, but but tribal mothering is an important part of, of, of bovine mothering per se, right? So the number of times that I have seen a cow try to get to a calf that is not even hers. And there is an ache there, there is an, there's an ache there too, there's a separation there too. There are so many layers of separation and trauma that we don't actually even identify because we, we focus on the main one, which, which is the one that we can possibly re- resonate the most with. Tribal mothering is not something that is normative in human systems anymore. So we tend to disregard that, the importance and the value of that right? But it is such a huge part of bovine mothering. And the number of times that I've tried, I've seen cows, of course, they're intensively tired, they cannot, but they have, they try to get to calves who are not even theirs. And that urge is strong, that urge is powerful. And therefore, the inability to fulfill that urge would fulfill that urge would be really traumatic, would be, you know, full of heartbreak for the cow and the calf.
1: Yeah. And the the places where where this is all happening are also really quite, quite varied. So the extent to which the separation is happening, you know, I think maybe some of us have in our minds when you see, you know, these mega dairies kind of emerging with those huge rotational dairy systems. But this isn't like, as you said, you've now got kind of calves being used to prime like milk flow and all of this. But You've got mini dairies happening in the middle of cities where there's massive amounts of noise and and also how do you say goshalas? Is that how you say it? Goshalas, yeah. Goshalas, yeah. Anyway, like just the, the 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 numerous spaces in which this kind of separation is happening and the proximity to calves that are not your own is happening as well is, is quite remarkable. Okay, Yemini, yeah, before I give away all the uh, all the details in your books. I, I just one one last question before we go to your quote is this was clearly a remarkable amount of ethnographic research here you spent a lot of time how how long were you like how long did it take you to do this and yeah like how how did you do this how did you how did you get into these spaces and 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 you know Getting access to dairy industries and stuff in North America is near impossible, but you've managed to kind of go into a variety of spaces from a variety of angles. You spoke to animal rights activists, you spoke to farmers, you spoke to people who sacralize the cow, but you spoke to people who don't. You spoke to truckers, you spoke to you know, conservationists. You really did an immense amount of work. So perhaps we could just speak a little bit about that. Like, how did you do this?
0: I think a few things went in my favor in terms of access. One is I think the animal industry in India is nowhere as severely securitized the way it is in the West. So I think access was much easier, though now with animal rights activism, as well as Hindu vigilantism, both of them on the rise, I think it is becoming a little bit harder. But at the time that I started, I think I had the fortune of these spaces just not being as securitized as they are in the West. So I think in the West, it's virtually impossible to get in unless you have a lot of contacts, unless they're very assured that you're not going to be critical or political. That wasn't necessarily the case. The other thing that helped was actually being a social scientist in some of these spaces, which are very professionally, you know, pure sciences like genetic engineering, for example. There is a certain ease in being ignorant because as a social scientist i know nothing about genetic science i know nothing about a lot of things so to to go there feeling very free to be ignorant was actually also very liberating so uh, so i was I, I was able to you know let go of my own sort of inhibitions and and just ask questions freely um, um note freely ask very obvious and mundane questions, which I think is also part of ethnography because when I go to a particular site, I'm not just going there by myself. I'm actually going with interpreters of that site who might be dairy scientists, who might be genetic scientists, who might be cow vigilantes, who might be, you know, right-wing fascists. They could be a spectrum of people, but they are interpreting the site for me because they are engaging with the sites in the ways that I'm not. So... I think losing your inhibition is really crucial in ethnography, your own inhibition to be ignorant and to ask questions. The other thing that possibly helped me was my Brahmin status because a lot of the Hindu right, and especially those that own gaushalas, these are cow shelters that are very political spaces, they assumed that I I am inherently sympathetic to the cause of the Hindu right. They were... They couldn't have necessarily foreseen that my politics was going to be really critical in terms of both caste, but also critical animal politics. The dovetailing of that would actually completely overturn or challenge or be in contrast to their own politics. And they they wouldn't have necessarily seen that. And so my Brahmin status gave me access because they just thought, of course, you're sympathetic and of course, you are invested in cow protection. Like, why wouldn't I be? And and sure, I am in invested in cow protection, but my interpretations of cow protection are very different to a political interpretation, to, the, to a Hindu political interpretation of cow protection. This
1: actually takes us back to the first question, which I don't think we, we, we answered, is what was the difference between cow protection and animal animal rights? I think we started there. And I don't know, did we say what the difference is between cow protection and animal rights? Or animal activism? <laughs> I think it's a good place to circle back because cow protection, I mean, uh, uh, uh,
0: cow protection falls very, uh, cow protection is a Hindu, is, is, is an advocacy strategy to create and protect a Hindu state. It is very different from any form of animal activism because it is not in the interest of the animal. It's in the interest of a Hindu state.
1: Okay, there we go. Said clearly. Well, I mean, it's been, it's been incredible. I know we've, is there anything with related to, to mother that you think that we haven't quite got to, that you would like to say before we move to the quote?
0: I, th- I think I, I, th- I think we covered everything, but what I wish I had done in my, I think I'll answer this question in terms of what I wish I had done in my own research, looking back, right? Like you think you've spent the last, I don't know, five, six years on this research and you have hopefully covered all aspects of it. And, and there's always something that remains. And what I wish I had paid more attention to, and I hope that this might be something that future researchers and cows might potentially pay more attention to, is focus more on the cow, on the calf. Because I think I did the thing that a lot of cow research does, and understandably so, which is to overwhelmingly focus on the traumas of the cow. But there's also to, a lot to be said about the traumas of the calf, and that is very much a huge, a, it's an incomplete picture of motherhood if we don't actually understand fully what's going on with the calf. And I wish I'd paid more attention to that. So maybe future ethnography can actually pay more attention and tell us more about what happens and, and help us read the calf better.
1: Yeah, it's, it's like the, the calf is often forgotten. Sometimes there's a, I mean, I, I didn't get that sense from reading it that you forgot about the calf, but I understand how we sometimes treat species as a monolithic group. And, and I mean, I think throughout your work, you showed kind of species is insufficient, even though it's important to kind of use to understand how we've got particular vulnerabilities. You, the experiences of a Jersey cow is very different to the experience of a, an indigenous cow is very different to the experience of a buffalo cow is very different to a steer and a bull and a calf. And even then, a calf born into an urban dairy is quite different to a calf born, you know, in a rural forest. The, 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 the they cut through with their own experiences. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. And, 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 and I should be, you know, your, what you just said reminds me in in terms of being specific. I think, I think I would hope that future, future research might consider being more specific with regards to the experiences of the girl calf, because we all focus on the, on the male calf, rightly so, because their, their separation is visceral total and they shunted off the slaughterhouse. But there's a lot to be learned about the ongoing traumas of separation from the girl calf. From the experiences of the girl calf. And I think that's something that needs to be really deepened in dairy research. So I was hoping that maybe future research could do what I think I didn't pay enough attention to in my own work.
1: Well, thank you so much for everything you have done. Do you have a, do you have a quote ready? Yeah, I thought I might read just
0: a, just a short paragraph from my chapter on milking. And that was, the, that was the scenario that you alluded to earlier in our conversation about my visiting a dairy farm and, and where, the, where, the, where I was trying, you know, where I pleaded for the calf to be, to be fed a full meal. But as I was leaving that farm, there was also a cow that was, who was imminently giving birth. So I just want to read out just the very last section, the very last short, very short section of, you know, how that, how that end transpired, right? So I'm reading here. She's about to give birth, first time, said the owner, who was kneeling and closely observing her udders, even as I looked at her wide eyes, fearful and in pain. Less than 45 minutes now, I would say. You can stay and watch if you like, added the man. I paused. How quickly will you remove the calf, I asked. Immediately, the man nodded. We'll give her a few minutes to clean and then immediately remove. One of the workers will give the calf its first feed from a bottle. Not even the first feed from the mother, I asked. No, he replied. The encourage no relationship between the mother and the child. I thanked the owner and I quickly walked out. As we left the gate, I noticed something I had not seen earlier in that evening, but which is a common sight in most dairies and gaushalas in India. A tall statue of the blue-skinned Lord Krishna, playing a flute as he leaned against a beautiful white cow. Then, as now, her calf was nowhere to be seen. She was frozen in time in her role as a mother, solely to the human.
1: Amazing. I think that really does sum up a lot of what we've spoken about here today. Thank you for this opportunity to speak to you, Claudia. I enjoyed it
0: so much. And I think this is one of my favorite interviews that I've ever done. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
1: <laughs> you're, you're too, you're too, like you, you bend my mind. Like I'm sitting here and I'm supposed to be coming up with questions to ask you, but now I'm like, my mind is whirling with, is it whirling whirring with things to to say and to do. I know that you've switched gears a little bit. Are you you you're you've switched gears, but you're still doing research in India at the moment, right? But what are you what are you doing research on now?
0: So currently, I have switched gears, and I I, I will at some point, I'm sure, return to dairy farming and and bovine ethnography at some point. But currently, I'm actually working on another large industry, which is virtually unrecorded or unspoken about in animal studies more, more broadly, which is the bricklands of India, we, the large construction sectors of India, which w- what I've learned very quickly in my research is that there's not one innocent brick in South Asia, per se. South Asia has the largest brick, brick belt, which goes from Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, into Bangladesh and Nepal. So I'm focusing on the bricklands in India, which is notorious for human rights and child rights abuses. But it's also really notorious for for some of the most brutal exploitations of equid labor—donkeys, horses, mules—and also camels and ox. So there's a lot of love, yeah. So I'm basically focusing on animal labor in Indian bricklands and bringing a new materiality, which is bricks, sand, topsoil, into conversation. Because a lot of the materialities that we discuss in animal studies often tends to the often is the materiality directly sourced from their bodies, like milk, meat. Which is, of course, some of the most significant forms of animal commodification, but also the ways in which sand, topsoil, bricks uh, rely on value being added by animal labor is, is something that I'm trying to bring into focus as well.
1: And what you do so powerfully is bring these intersections together you know showing how animal labor is shot through with particular types of human labor and that we can't speak about them as separate from one another it's 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 not sensible to actually be speaking about them as though they exist in isolation from other forms of oppression or other kind of challenges so are you heading to the field to do that soon yes so i'm heading to india in 2
0: weeks for another 2 weeks i've already spent about 3 months in india so i'm going to going going to go back. The reason I'm going back in May is because that is the end of the brickland season, so the brick baking season, like dairy farming occurs all through the year brick brick making occurs just they have to stop before the monsoons because you know they can't mold the brick because of the because of the rains and they also can't turn the oven on right the the huge ovens so it has to by the end of summer, the bricklands have to close before the monsoons start so it is about 45 degrees Celsius, which I think is close to 100 degrees Fahrenheit weather wise. And then the, and then the, the ovens themselves are radiating about 600 degrees Celsius of heat. The animals have been working in extraordinarily hot conditions, carrying huge amounts of labor, a huge amounts of weight for several months now. And so far, I've always seen the animals at the start of the Brooklyn season in Northern winter. So now I want to go. In Northern summer, because they are absolutely decrepit by this, by this time. They are living corpses, really, by this time, emaciated with the kind of work that they've been doing. So the International Labor Organization actually calls the Bricklands the most extreme working environment. And they are, of course, talking about human beings because that's what ILO does, right? They are focused on human, human labor and human labor violations. But if you, you can imagine, if it is the most extreme working environment, you can imagine what that also means for animals who who are subsidizing the most extreme working environment. Yeah.
1: This is heavy stuff, Yamini. This is heavy, heavy stuff. It's 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 remarkable and it's interesting and you're incredibly inspiring to to do. These are difficult topics that we need to talk about and that people need to go to and see and write about frankly and honestly, which is not easy to do when you're looking at animals in situations where humans are also treated badly, right? It's really hard to speak about animals being treated badly in situations where humans are also treated being treated badly because... And they're treated being treated badly
0: by humans who are being treated badly. So to navigate that uh, landscape of extreme human vulnerability that is nonetheless also causing extreme human uh, animal vulnerability is a very fraught landscape to, to, to walk carefully. So these are the landmines that I'm navigating at the moment.
1: Well, you're teaching us all. Thank you so much for your, for your time. Thank you for your energy, your efforts, uh, the research. I'll make sure that I put your details of your your websites and, and social media in the show notes. Um, but thank you, thank you so much for joining me on The Animal Turn, Yamini.
0: Oh, thank you, Claudia, for the most wonderful conversation I've had. I genuinely mean it. I think this is the conversation about the book that I've enjoyed the most so far. So, thank you. Thank you for your time. And thank you for having me over again for the at the end of the It's a real honor. It's a
1: real honor. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much to Yemini Narayanan for being an amazing guest, to Christian Mentz for editing this episode, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. As always, thank you to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hurtenfelder.
0: For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I R O A R P O D.com.